0: A Canadian journalist infiltrates an international network of violent extremists. They don't care who they maim or hurt or kill. White supremacists who want to spark a race war and incite the collapse of society. Embrace
1: the chaos, and from its
2: ashes, a new world
0: shall rise. To victory, white man. I'm Michelle Shepard, and I'll take you inside this movement to learn where it came from and where it's headed next. White hot hate. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts.
3: This is a CBC Podcast.
4: Previously on Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. My sister Cleo died in
0: 1975.
4: She was 11
0: years old and was apprehended by the province of Saskatchewan and sent to Arkansas to a foster family where she was abused. She tried to hitchhike back to Little Pine, back home to the reserve, but was picked up, raped, and murdered,
2: and left by the side of the road.
4: Please, help us find her. After decades of searching for answers about her missing sister, Christine Cameron makes a call that may unlock the truth. Yes, Government ask. Yeah, I'm not sure that information is correct.
0: Well, it would be nice to have some sort of information. You know, as a sibling, you know, it's been 40 years.
4: Yeah. And for 20 years, you've told me nothing. I know. This is my sister. Christine is haunted by the mystery surrounding Cleo's death. She and her siblings were torn apart as children. But now, Christine, Johnny, Mark, and April have joined together to get answers and to find Cleo. They want to know... How old was Cleo when she died? Was anyone ever convicted in her murder? How did she end up on that highway? Was she running away from something? Or running to try to get back to Little Pine, to her community and to the people she loved? Because if you know she's not
0: in Arkansas, then find a way to tell me where she is. Okay, that's what I'm gonna work
1: on. So I will call you by tomorrow at the latest to let you know where I'm at.
4: Okay. So they do know, they're just not telling me. I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo, an investigative podcast by CBC News. So why won't the government just tell Christine what she wants to know? Well, basically, it comes down to privacy. Before Christine could be reunited with her biological family, she had to put in a request— with Saskatchewan post-adoption services. If her siblings did the same, they were connected. You might think that because Cleo died, there would be no more privacy concerns and it would make this process of finding her simpler. But it seems the opposite. Carrie from social services keeps her promise to Christine and calls back the next day with new information about Cleo. We were back in Toronto, but we talked to Christine right after the call.
0: Hey, ladies.
1: Hello. Uh, hey, Christine. Morning, Connie.
0: Oh, hi. How are you? Good. I'm just talking with Johnny. He's on video here. Oh, oh. my
4: goodness. Christine wow. was chatting with her older brother, Johnny Semegonis, when we called. They've reconnected since being separated when Christine was just a baby, but still haven't seen each other in person in more than 45 years. Hi,
1: Johnny. Hi, you
0: doing? Anyway, I was telling John that uh, Carrie called me this morning. What is did she, she She says that uh, the state of New Jersey is willing to give us her registration of life birth. New Jersey. New Jersey? New Jersey, yeah. Did you
5: have any idea that Cleo was in New Jersey?
0: No clue. This is all just news to me, so... Uh, how are you guys feeling? I can't imagine. Oh, I don't know. Well, see me, I'm... Kind of, like, do I be mad at my biological family, but they weren't told anything either. Uh, Or am I mad at that government? I don't know. I'm just like, New Jersey is just like kind of crazy.
4: Carrie says that if Christine wants to find Cleo, she will need to contact the state of New Jersey. New Jersey and Arkansas are 2,000 kilometers apart. Why did her family believe Cleo was in Arkansas? Did she somehow end up there? Is this why I couldn't find any information about the murder of a young girl in Arkansas because Cleo was actually hitchhiking from New Jersey? And if her family was wrong about her adoption, could they be wrong about other parts of her story?
0: So I was just telling Johnny, I said, well, if she was never in Arkansas and she's in New Jersey, then there might be a remote possibility that she's still alive too. She didn't offer a death certificate. Maybe she's still alive. That would
4: be cool. Oh my gosh. Could Cleo actually be alive? It seems so unlikely. But they were wrong about her being adopted in Arkansas. Is there a chance they're wrong about her murder too?
0: I just want to keep going forward though and find out more. Find out where the hell she is, right? You know, like, tell me if you know... I just had a thought there a few about 10 minutes ago. I was thinking, this is my life, my blood, my family. And you know, this paternalistic, you know, government has been hiding the truth from me for decades, decades. You know, I just think they finally realized that I'm not going anywhere. And you know, I, I think of all any other family that has no answers. And I understand their need to want answers.
4: Carrie told Christine that she could apply for Cleo's birth certificate from the state of New Jersey. When people are adopted, they're issued a new birth certificate. If we can get this, then we'll know Cleo's adopted name and her birth date. And that will open up so many more options in our search for information. But how difficult will it be to get Cleo's birth certificate from the United States?
0: Please be assured that your call will receive the time and attention it deserves. When we return to the line.
4: We're about to find out.
0: Hello? Yeah, hi. I'm calling from North Bay, Ontario, Canada. I'd like some information about my uh, biological sister, who I understand was adopted to your state through the Adopt Indian Métis program in Saskatchewan. She was of uh, Aboriginal... This
1: this is what happens. You can register yourself, and if your sister is looking for you, they'll contact you. Were, we, were you adopted? Yes. Oh, you are through New Jersey?
0: No, no, I'm from Canada. My, my sister originated in Canada. All right.
1: Okay. Uh, okay, what's your sister's name?
0: My sister's, I don't know my sister's adopted name, but her her uh, birth name, her biological mm-hmm. name was Cleopatra, some nicotine. And do you know her daughter birth? I have no idea what her date of birth is.
1: So let me just understand, you're looking for your uh, medical records?
0: No, no, no. I want all any and all information that I would be available to me regarding my biological sister, Cleopatra. I don't, I, like, what would you need that for?
4: This call is getting very confusing very quickly. The woman in New Jersey just doesn't seem to grasp why Christine is trying to find her sister.
1: We don't give out information about other adoptees to birth siblings. Why is that? Identity. And you're saying your sister passed. Like I said, we give out non identifying information, which is you can get your medical records. That's all we give out. That's all you give out? Mm hmm.
0: Is there a do you have an appeal process or something in place where I can write to your state or whatever or whatever board it is that oversees your, you know, adoption proc- process now and in the past so that I can find resolution to my inquiry?
1: So, you go right to the state of New Jersey. Um I would suggest that you send it to maybe the governor's
0: office.
4: The governor's office? This government employee is suggesting that Christine reach out to New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's office for help.
1: I mean, you can go online and do that. Uh, Do you have access to the web?
0: Yes, I do.
1: Okay. Let me give you the address for that. Then hold on one second. All right. So it's nj.gov slash nj slash gov. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so I'm sending your
1: information to the registry that you're looking for your
0: sister. But she might have registered if if she's still alive, then she would be maybe uh, in the registry, right? That's correct. Okay. All right, so let's just wait for that then.
1: Okay. All right, so have a good day.
0: Yeah, you have a good day, too, and thank you for taking the time to... Okay. All right. She hung up on me.
4: Now what? We know Cleo was adopted in New Jersey, but without her adopted name or her birth date, it's almost impossible to find her. The government of Saskatchewan says it can't help any more than this. New Jersey seems like a long shot. Where do we go next? Please
0: dial one before a 10-digit long distance number. Thank you.
4: Cleo's other biological siblings might know something, anything more about her. We're planning a trip to meet Johnny in person. But in the meantime, we call their brother Mark. He was adopted in Saskatchewan, but now lives in Edmonton, Alberta. Sorry, I just wanted to put my headphones on so I so I could take notes. Yeah, no worries. Of all the Semeganist kids, he seems to have spent the most time with biological relatives in Saskatchewan. So I'm curious what the Semeganist family in Little Pine has told him about Cleo.
1: Um, that she is adopted into the States. She didn't say where but uh, that she's adopted into the States. She didn't want to live with the family that she was with. And uh, what I was told that she was hitchhiking, somebody picked her up, whoever picked her up, raped her and killed her and left her on the side of the road. And I had heard, again, through my relatives later, a few years later, that uh, her body might be on Ohio.
4: Ohio. This is the first time I've heard anyone suggest that Cleo could have been in Ohio. But if you look at a map, you'll see that if you were hitchhiking from New Jersey to Saskatchewan, there's actually a good chance you'd pass through Ohio, or at least buy it. Mark doesn't know Cleo's birthday either, he suggests we contact his sister, April. I got your number from Mark. I just was just on the phone with him. She's a few years older than um, him. Do you have a few minutes to chat right now? Does yes, I can. Okay, great. So, so I'm not sure how much Mark told you about what what it is that we're hoping to do. Yes. yes he told me everything. Do you do you remember Cleo?
5: Um, no, I don't. Um, I have bipolar depression, and um, for nine and a half years, I I, I did ECT, and my memory's gone. Most of my memory's gone because of that.
4: That's heartbreaking. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm just going to stop here and explain. April says she did nine and a half years of ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy or electroshock therapy, it's basically a procedure where electricity passes through the brain and triggers a seizure. And April did that to treat her bipolar depression.
5: I stopped doing it back in September, but my memory hasn't come back at all.
4: So do you do you remember anything from from before your adoption?
5: Some things I do that um, We don't have to that weren't
4: very pleasant. Yeah, we don't have to we don't have to get into it now. That's because I'm worried that getting into whatever happened to her as a child could be re-traumatizing. I think it's important to try to be sensitive about trauma when covering stories from Indigenous communities, because the harsh reality is that whatever story you're there to cover, it's likely not the only traumatic event that that person has dealt with. But I find that even though painful memories are often brought up in these conversations, most people are ready to talk. And despite my hesitation, it seems April is too.
5: Yeah, there's quite a few things that you know. <clears throat> excuse me, I have flashbacks about everything. One, my older sister, who's eighteen months older than me, we were we were adopted together. When when we each turned thirteen, we ended up on the streets of Toronto.
4: That's very young to be out there on your own. Yes, and not so pleasant things happened when we were living. <laughs> living
5: on the
4: streets. April and I talk for about 20 minutes more about her childhood, about Annette, her older sister who was adopted into the same family, and about her desire to find Cleo. And so um, if we were to come out and come out, could we come and spend some time with you?
5: That'd be awesome. Anything I can do, you know, to get Cleo's ashes home, you know.
4: I want to hear more of April's story, But I hang up the phone, feeling quite conflicted. April is keen to participate in the podcast, eager actually. She wants to help in this search for Cleo, and even says she has some documents that might have some clues about her. But April was also incredibly open about her ongoing struggles. And I wonder, would being involved in this process be a good thing for her? Is that even our decision to make? I know that finding Cleo is so important to her family, and this family's story deserves to be told, but I don't want to make life more difficult for any of them. We talk to April again, and she says that her parents have some concerns, and asks that we talk to them too. April is actually the only semaginous kid who still has a relationship with her adoptive parents. In fact, they're still really close. I wonder if they know anything about Cleo. There were six semaginous kids in the care of social services. How did they come
2: to adopt April and her sister Annette? At the time, it seemed like a really good thing to do. We had a good life in front of us. A good life they thought
4: would only get better with more children. It was 1974, and Jeff and Kay were a young couple in Toronto, already with three boys of their own.
3: We had initially hoped to adopt a, a baby,
2: and the thought was a Vietnamese baby.
3: And then they suggested, well, would you? how about... Have um, you
2: thought about Native kids? And we hadn't.
3: Then the call, would you take two, then older girls.
2: I remember feeling almost a little bit guilty, because we really hadn't thought about kids in our own country at that point, but we were open. So open that once they contacted the
4: Children's Aid Society to explore the idea of adoption, things moved
2: very quickly.
3: And then they called back and said, well, would you consider going out to meet them, which is what we did.
2: I don't think we even felt like we could say no at that point. And we were saying yes without having one iota of an idea what that really meant. Kay and Jeff soon found themselves on a plane from
4: Toronto to Saskatchewan, a trip that would change the course of their lives. Do you remember yeah. the first time you met her?
3: Absolutely, I remember the first time I met her. Oh,
2: of course, of course.
3: So it was in uh, outside of North Battleford, Saskatchewan in the middle of winter, minus 40 degrees, we were on the prairies.
2: Completely different environment. Dark, cold February. You
3: know, we were all, oh my gosh, what's this going to be like?
2: The foster family introduced the kids and they were all dressed up. And
3: There were these two little girls sitting on the couch with their hair all it had been permed, little curls. Really
2: tight curls seemed extraordinarily sort of out of place, you know.
3: <laughs> little matching dresses, and as Kay and I went in, it was. They
2: had already been prompted to call us, Mom and Dad. Hi, Mommy and Daddy. Mommy and Daddy. When they met Jeff and Kay,
4: April was five and Annette was six. They'd already been in and out of foster care for a couple of years. Jeff and Kay say that right after meeting them for the first time, they were allowed to take the girls back to their hotel for an overnight visit.
3: We had cots wheeled into the room because we we hadn't expected this. And, uh,
2: and they were
3: cutest buttons. They were just... All happy and full of beans. They'd sit on our knee and talk to us and they were terrific. It was hard to get back on the plane without them.
4: In the span of a few months, they went from a family of five to a family of seven.
3: Their social worker brought them to Toronto and we met them at the airport. So that was it.
4: I wondered what information or advice did Jeff and Kay get from social workers? Were they told anything about April and Annette's culture? Family,
3: You know, they'd send these inexperienced social workers to visit. They were just, it was really not very pleasant.
2: We were all pretty anxious. Everybody was wanting to please everybody.
3: You know, in retrospect, there were a lot of issues that came with them that we knew nothing about.
2: You know, they needed and wanted a lot of attention, and rightly so. There was no hesitation to give them that. I wonder if in those first few months,
4: April or Annette ever talked about their family back home in Saskatchewan. Did April and
2: Annette miss their sister Cleo? We received a page basically on each kid and the paragraphs were similar. Happy child, doing well in school, but no detail. And I even think it was in some of the documents that Cleo had an interest in staying in touch with her younger sisters, April and Annette. Cleo wanted to keep in touch with her little sisters.
4: Hearing this breaks my heart. I can't help but think of how hard this must have been for her, a young girl already separated from her mother, and then
2: again from all of her siblings. So... We were open, but it might not have been the same feeling for the adoptive parents for Cleo. I thought she there's something about New Jersey, that she was adopted in a family in New Jersey. You have that memory? I thought I read that somewhere. I thought that was in the documents, but that isn't necessarily something that they tell you, so I don't know. And although there were ups and downs, both Jeff and Kay say the girls
4: settled into their new lives. There wasn't much sign of the trouble that was coming
2: until just before Annette's 13th birthday. She said, I want to go skating. She went apparently skating and just simply did not come back. And I got a call at somewhere between 11 and 12 that night from her just saying, I'm not coming home, and hung up. So that began the running that is very, very, very familiar to adoptive families. Again, I'm reminded of Cleo, who was also very young
4: when she ran away from her adoptive home. A year later, April
2: ran away too. Right at her 13th birthday, same thing.
3: Uh, you, know, you know, thinking back, I, I don't know how the kids were in as good a shape as they were given what they'd been through.
2: She just started not coming home.
4: Kay says she doesn't know why her girls ran away. But she believes it had to do with the trauma they both experienced as young girls.
2: I began to hear stories and... The stories that I heard were that they were both sexually and physically abused in their foster homes.
3: It came to light that they were abused by their foster father, or, or so, they, so the girls said.
2: Oh, it's horrible. It, absolutely horrible.
3: You know, I, I have to believe them, and I wonder where the children's aid was about that out there. Like, and, you know, there's never been any pursuit of that. And that's a, I mean, that's horrific.
2: I did have a conversation with Annette at one point saying that if she wanted to pursue any legal process that I would totally stand by her, but that I wouldn't initiate it without her.
4: Kay says April ran for years, but now she's in a good place. And since stopping her ECT treatments, she's asked her parents for help and piecing
2: together her life story.
4: How did did you feel doing that?
2: Truth heals. There's so much healing that needs to happen. There's so much truth that needs to be told.
4: As I'm about to say goodbye to Kay, she tells me she got a call from social services sometime after the adoption. But the social worker wasn't calling to ask about April or Annette. They were calling with news
2: about Cleo. I got a phone call when the kids were pretty young, and I would have said it was when Cleo was either 11 or 12, and it could have been 13, that she had died. I wasn't ever told any circumstances around her death, but I was told that she had died. and. I don't have a specific date. Even though it seemed like a long shot,
4: Christine was hoping that maybe there was a chance that Cleo was still alive. But this feels like confirmation. Cleo died. It's what her family has always believed, but still incredibly disappointing to hear.
2: Do you remember how you felt? I was was shocked to imagine a child dying so young.
4: I came to the Navajo Nation looking for answers after an Indigenous elder vanished in the dead of night. But I soon found something else a tangled web of violence and retaliation.
0: It's survival out there. That's what it is. It's about survival.
4: Those guys know something. I just think they're afraid to say it. People know you can get away with murder out there. I'm Connie Walker. Listen to Stolen, Trouble in Sweetwater on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So we still don't know when Cleo was born, but we know that April and Annette were adopted in 1974, and according to Kay, Cleo died a few years after that. I'm hoping that the documents April has will have more information. Both Jeff and Kay have told us they support April's decision to do an interview, so after careful consideration, we head to a small town in New England to meet April in person. Hello? Hi, it's Connie and Marnie. Okay, I'll pause in. Hi. Hi. How are you?
5: Okay, how are you?
4: Good, I'm Connie. Nice to meet you. Nice to
5: meet you too, and this is my baby, Precious.
4: Doesn't <laughs> know quite what to think. But you're not guys, guy, so she's not running away. <laughs> April lives in a small bachelor apartment... She has one of those places where you get a real sense of the person as soon as you walk inside. Her apartment is colourful and warm, and her walls are full of pictures. Most of them are animals, especially cats. Some of her pictures are First Nations themed, like Indian warriors wrapped in robes. And there's also a wall hanging that says Believe, surrounded by four dreamcatchers, each one a different shape and size. So did you make these? Yes,
5: yes. You know, part of me is in each one of these, each dream catcher. You know, the, the bad dreams get caught up in the webs and
4: the good dreams go through. One of the few photos of real people displayed in her apartment is a picture of Cleo, a photocopy of the same photo Christine has.
5: Those were the eyes that haunted me when I first got the picture. I'd wake up and it just like the picture was always turned towards the bed. Like, you know, it's, you've got to help me. She wants you to help her. She wants you to bring her back where she belongs. <laughs> it's okay. There are no men around. She doesn't like men? Oh, she she doesn't mind men. But she lives, I'm the one who's with her most of the time. So. How about these photos? This is. April shows me a
4: picture of her and Annette. That's Annette. This is me, and this is our adoption picture. It's like one of those Sears portraits. The girls are sitting really close together. Annette's arm is behind April's back, and they're wearing matching plaid dresses. They have little barrettes holding their curly hair away from their faces. April looks to be about four or five years old in the picture, and she has a really big, wide smile. I call her sissy. You guys are so cute. Annette looks a year or two older than her sister, and more serious. She's smiling, too, but not as big. You can see her deep dimples. It's heartbreaking to imagine what these little girls were going through when this photo was taken. I understood why April's parents were so concerned, especially because of what happened to Annette.
5: And then she met that
4: idiot, and um, he was abusive
5: to her, from what Mom told me. Um, and she started drinking again after he went while they were together and then he left her and she couldn't take it you know 18 months after she met him he, she
4: she was dead cirrhosis of the liver annette died in 2008 when she was just 40 years old you know and this is picture how,
5: how often do you think about her oh every day you know it just you know, cuz we went through everything together We were always there for each other.
4: April's been trying to get back some of what she's lost. She wants to remember the good times that she and Annette had together. She's read the letters that Jeff and Kay have sent her about her childhood. Some of what is revealed is painful, but she says she's ready for it.
5: I'm not afraid to delve into it now. Before I was afraid. You know, I want to get that place of peace and calmness. Not in death, but in life. And I actually see it within my reach,
4: you know, but I have to go through these hard things. What was the fear of of writing down or remembering your story?
5: That it all come crashing down and I wouldn't be able to handle it. You know, because between 2002 and 2007, I tried to kill myself 41 times. I just came close, so close. You know, they told me I was I was so close to death and I was lucky to be alive.
4: Yeah. Yeah, baby. There's a long silence, and honestly, I'm not sure what to say. But I do know that April and Annette's experiences are not unique. Mental illness... Substance abuse and suicide are incredibly common among survivors of the Sixties Scoop. Psychologists say they're all the effects of losing your culture and identity. And while April still struggles to overcome her past, I'm grateful she has support and a community here.
5: Yeah, those are the whiskers that tickle me in the morning.
4: April is petting her cat, and it's obvious what a comfort she is to her.
5: I mean, it's just as if she's saying, "I'm here. I'm here for you." I still have those um, bad dreams. You know, it's just I can't seem to get rid of them. Two nights ago, I just almost woke up screaming, but I don't remember them in the morning. I just know that she is pulling me out of a bad dream. She's saying to me that, "You know, it's okay, Mama. It's only a dream." You wake up and you'll find that out.
4: Let's go for that ride and I'll show you around town. We decide to head out. I'm relieved to shift the conversation and April is excited to give us a tour. Now I warn you, that seatbelt's hard to hook. You have my favorite thing ever. Yeah, seat warmer. As April drives, she points out people she knows, her favorite restaurant, the apartment building that she eventually wants to move into.
5: There's the pharmacy, that's where I get my medications
4: from. is such a sweet town. Not too big, not too small. It's easy to 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 see how someone who's been through so much is drawn to this place. So I hitchhiked down here and I saw this state for the first time. And it, it just took my breath away, the beauty of it. This reminds me of when Kay said April is on a healing journey. And I can see that too. April says part of it is reconnecting with her biological siblings. She says Mark calls her about once a week, and Johnny's texted her a few times already today. So much of this new relationship with her siblings seems to be fueled by their quest to find their sister.
5: I can feel the roots starting to go into the ground, you know, and their four main roots, you know, the four of us. And they're just gonna, as we we go through this process and the process of life, you know, they're gonna grow even more, you know, but it'll be a solid foundation. That's the best part about it because it's never been solid all my life.
4: Describe what we're driving on right now. We are driving up a very, very
5: steep road and look, see some of the houses here and everything.
4: This is beautiful. Yeah. April has pulled over and now we're standing on a hill overlooking the town below. She's holding a picture of Cleo. I wish she was smiling. I'd love to see her
5: smile. It's you can you can see her eyes, you know, it it just she doesn't understand. Yeah, you know, that's heartbreaking. I don't think she had a very good childhood. None of us did. At least we got to see the end of the road where she never got a chance to. Well, I'd love to be able to hug her. <laughs> you no, know, this is my older sister. Just finally figuring out what, what life's all about. But I don't think I'll truly feel 100% what it's about, you know? It's... But the good thing about it is the four of us are doing it together now. Oh, mom. Hi, mom. How are you? We're They're still here. Okay, love you, mom. Bye. She's at work. She just wanted to check in and make sure it was all right. No, I was thinking my was solid. Back to the worms. Ooh.
4: Back at her apartment, April shows me the document that she got from her mom, Kay.
5: What, what yeah, is what is this? this? I don't want you
4: guys to read. Have you read this?
5: Yes, I've read it five times.
4: It's a report from Social Services about April and her sister Annette. What does it say? I'm so curious to read this report. I wonder what it says about Cleo. If if anything's difficult, you don't have to read it.
5: Okay. Annette was born January 1st, 1967, in Saskatchewan, and was made a permanent ward on September 29th, 1972. She is an Indian with band status. She is 46 inches tall,
4: weighs 50 pounds. Has the document is from 1974, so it's typewritten. It's three pages long and broken up into sections. At the very top, it says background history.
5: Both girls are found to play well together, with neither being notably dominant over the other. Far, some other things in that is very intelligent, and sleeping and eating habits are excellent. <laughs> Jeez, what? It just. It's like they're talking about an, an animal, you know, it's, geez. Annette's mother is a single 29-year-old registered Cree Indian woman. She is attractive
4: with dark brown hair and eyes. And an This is our first real glimpse into this Simeonis children's biological mother, Lillian. She's been such a mystery for us. But I think learning about Lillian is key to understanding Cleo's story. She is a friendly, open person,
5: polite and appreciative of any help given her. She is sensitive and easily threatened by criticism. She completed grade 13 and, with the help of the Department of Indian Affairs, attended grade...
4: I think that's grade
5: 8. Oh, grade grade 8. She completed grade 8. She was considered to be bright and capable and planned to complete high school to enter a nursing course.
4: There's a section in the document called Placement History... This outlines where Annette and April lived while they were in care. This is the foster home that April remembers, but has tried so hard
5: to forget. Mother is a very active foster mother, and father's not as much in the picture. It has been an excellent home for them. How little did they know?
4: How little did they know? April doesn't say any more than that, and I don't ask her to elaborate.
5: She has not shown any symptoms of homesickness and settled well into her foster home. She does sometimes apparently mention her siblings. Can, can you just read that last sentence again? She does, she does what? It says, um, she does sometime apparently mention her siblings. Siblings, Johnny born in 1961. Cleopatra was born in 65.
4: There it is. According to this document from Saskatchewan Social Services, Cleo was born in 1965. I'm excited to even see Cleo's name in print. It's an actual record of her existence. And not only that, her birth year, 1965.
5: Johnny born in 1961, Cleo Pato, was born in 65, are in foster homes and plans are underway for their adoption.
4: Not only her birth year, but this document was written in January 1974 and says plans were underway for Cleo's adoption. So Cleo would have been eight or nine years old when she was adopted. There's so much more to unpack in that report about Cleo's siblings, about their mother, about why they were apprehended. Hey, love.
5: Can I go back in about 15
4: minutes? Okay. But it's been a long day, and I sense it's time to go. We can get out of your hair. Yeah. April promises to send us a copy of the file. We thank her and say goodnight. So, thank you. April, mm. all so good tonight. I hope so. I leave April's apartment wondering just how much of her struggles can be tied directly back to the trauma she experienced as a child. Hearing about the devastating impacts of the abuse, she and Annette went through in foster care, weighs heavy on my heart. I hope the journey April is on will bring her peace, and I hope our investigation to help find Cleo can bring all of her siblings some resolution. I felt we were one step closer with finding out Cleo's birth date and the year of her adoption, but I had no idea then where it would lead us. No idea just how significant it would become. I didn't realize that discovering those little details would set in motion a domino effect that would lead us right to Cleo. On the next Missing and Murdered Finding Cleo, we head to Pennsylvania to meet Johnny and learn about his haunting promise to Cleo on the last day he saw his sister.
3: That was a little lie to make to her, but I wanted to make her feel good.
4: And a late-night internet search leads us to a small town in New Jersey and one step closer to Finding Cleo. So I used first name Cleo and birth year 1965.
2: And up came this hit.
4: Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo is written and hosted by me, Connie Walker. Our producers are Marnie Luke and Jennifer Fowler. Mika Anderson is our audio producer and our senior producer is Heather Evans. To subscribe to our podcast, search Missing and Murdered Finding Cleo on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to the podcast on our website at cbc.ca slash findingcleo. To see April and Annette's adoption photo, visit our website at cbc.ca slash findingcleo.